Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting edge, state of the art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca/slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code CanadaLand to get 10% at checkout. Squarespace, you should. The show is also brought to you by CJFE. Canadian journalists for free expression do a lot of things to protect and extend your freedom of expression rights. They do other things as well, including putting all of the Edward Snowden files online in an archive. They're the only ones who've done this. You can go check out the Snowden archive. You can sign up and become a member at a reduced rate. Go to cjfe.org right now. Help them out. My first day at work, I was locked out of the building. This is back in 2005 when my first contract at the CBC was set to begin. It's my first job anywhere, really, like a nine-to-five media job. And as it happened, on that day that I was set to begin, management had locked CBC's employees out of the building. Well, I came to work anyhow. 
I walked the picket line until I found my colleagues and my boss. One of them actually said to me, what are you doing here? I said, where can I get a picket sign? There was a lot of confusion. Ultimately, I found a union rep. I said, I'm a contract employee. I should be out here as well. They didn't really know what to do with me either. And they gave me a phone number. I called the union. I left a message. I said that I felt that I should be on the line as well. Nobody ever called me back. That was over 10 years ago, and my relationship with unions has not improved much since. I've been a member of two or three of them. It's hard to keep track. Anytime you do any work in the Canadian media, immediately some of your pay is garnished by the union, and technically you become a member of that union. But my feeling throughout that whole period is that though I've been paying in, I haven't gotten anything back. No job security, not the same benefits as staff employees. And I've experienced all of the cliches. I've experienced the senior unionized staff member employee who gets paid twice as much as the young contract worker but works half as much. I've had friends who've been mistreated by their bosses go to their unions with these grievances. It's never worked out well for them. And through these experiences, my own experiences and other people's anecdotes, I've slowly built up this idea in my head that it's not just about the union not helping me. And I've kind of formed the opinion over the years that the only way that staff members, that fully unionized staff members of our media companies can enjoy such a high level of job security, such great benefits, guaranteed raises, pensions when their careers are over, the only way for them to have so much is for the rest of us, the contractors, the casuals, the temps, to have so little of that stuff. That's been my opinion but I will admit it is not a terribly informed one. It's not a well-researched one. I've never reported on this topic. I don't know a lot about the unions in Canada. And so when I was mouthing off about them a few weeks ago on Canada Land Shortcuts, I got some immediate pushback from people who do live and work in that field. And the one who got back to me was Nora Loretto. She works for the Canadian Association of Labor Media, and she's the author of the book From Demonized to Organized, Building the New Union Movement. So it's long overdue that I informed my opinion about the unions, and it's long overdue for the show that we discuss this topic. And Nora Loretto will join me in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Zurich Hegland. Dave, Jesse Jacobs, Deb Matheson, Lindsay Duncan, Steve Goldblum, Jamie Strachan, Tim Heron, and Kathleen Peterson. Kathleen, why did you decide to be awesome? Because Canada Land offers a perspective on things that you don't get anywhere else, and you, Jesse, are not too full of yourself yet. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, 
there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is also brought to you, as mentioned, by Squarespace.com. A lot of people who listen to the show do very interesting things. And when you do interesting things, really, if you're doing anything, you need a website. And there's no reason to start from scratch when you can just use Squarespace. Any website you make with Squarespace looks professionally designed regardless of your skill level. There's no coding required. They have intuitive and easy-to-use tools. You get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. You don't have to give them a credit card. You just go right into the website, pick a template, start building your site. When you decide to actually sign up and go live with your website, use the offer code CANADALAND to get 10% off of your first purchase. You will also be doing the show a favor. I have been publishing websites for my projects since like 1997. I remember when updating the content meant updating HTML. I am so glad that things have progressed since then. But it's amazing how this is still lagged for so many people. Depending on what kind of system you're using or how it's coded, it's just not as easy to update your content as it is all the other platforms that we use online. That's what Squarespace is about. They bridge that gap. They make it as easy to keep your website updated and relevant as it is to put in content in any social media platform. All that plus state-of-the-art security and stability, Squarespace, you should. So, Nora, I was talking about media unions on shortcuts. I say a lot of things on shortcuts. I, I don't remember exactly what I said about unions. What did I get wrong? The reality is, is, is there's a real lack of analysis and a lack of coverage of, the, of unions in the mainstream media. And so when there is a conversation that happens, it tends to focus on a personal ex experience or a personal example. And in the case of shortcuts, that's kind of what happened was there was two conversations happening. Uh, why would media workers want to unionize? And then this was my experience at the CBC and it was bad. <laughs> and I think that there's space for both of those, but only when the mainstream press takes labor reporting more seriously or as seriously as it did decades ago. I think that you bring up a good point that there used to be people on the beat of labor reporting and, the, and those jobs have gradually been eliminated with, I think, just like one or two exceptions. And I think that's worth looking at. But I guess I would push back a little bit on the idea that my opinion or that opinions in general are just based on a person's personal anecdote. And we, we, we tend to throw out anecdotal evidence. I have my anecdotes. Yes, they're not positive. I've never felt represented. I've been a member of uh, two or maybe three different media unions. I've never felt like I've gotten much out of it, and there have been some negativity in there. But I'm also aware of the anecdotes of a lot of other people, and I don't think that that's worthless. And I feel like I do have a conception of what organized labor has become, and I, I don't feel like it's my friend in the media. And maybe I can kind of describe to you my conception, and, and you can let me know if I'm off base. Okay. So my general sense of it is that 
there's this designation. I mean, you know, unions are there to make sure that a job actually means something, that you have certain protections, that you can't just fire somebody for no reason, benefits, severance, all these things to represent you. But that's if you have a job. And I feel like there was this category where management asked for, well, we want to be able to do projects or hire people short term and not have to give them all of that stuff. So can we just have a little bit of room to hire people on short contracts? And somehow that got mutated into like a caste system where an entire generation of employees only works on contracts, only works as precarious labor where you don't even have to fire people. You just don't renew their contract. That was true for just about everybody I knew under a certain age at the CBC. I know that's true at the Toronto Star where a bunch of young reporters who like basically were full-time employees just didn't get their contracts renewed. And, and, th- and that stuff, you know, you're right about the media side. It never gets reported because they're not technically layoffs. Right. And, and I think I, one of the things that I think that you said that's interesting is you said somehow this has happened. I would say it's not a, it's not just a phenomenon that that kind of just somehow, you know, good jobs are, are disappearing in the mainstream media and and the alternative media as well. And it's contracts. It was actually a very deliberate push to find ways to get rid of the union within uh, major media empires. And a great example is the Toronto Star. If you look at the Toronto Star in the early 90s, everyone who was hired to do the web-based stuff to try and develop a new Toronto Star for the web were on contract. Not only was it easy to get rid of people, but there was no in-house Uh, permanent positions of people who knew the web. And so by the late 90s and the early 2000s, you had a lot of free agents of web experts in the media, but they weren't housed anywhere in a full-time capacity because that entire stream was, was segmented off into contractual work. And as we've progressed through cutbacks and cutbacks and and layoffs and even uh, sharper media concentration, that has proliferated uh, well beyond uh, just uh, one wing of a newsroom or one section of a news newspaper. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. My father-in-law, his career was at the Toronto Star and his stories of contracting out and he was on the business side, not the journalism side. Uh, it was totally deliberate. It was totally deliberate to save money. And 30 years after that project has started uh, is, is where we are today. I don't doubt that that was deliberate on management's part. Of course, management would rather have contract labor than, than staff jobs. How did the union allow that to happen? How did the union allow that to become, to grow from, well, you know, we'll give you a little bit of flexibility for certain projects to institutionalizing that so that everybody works contracts and precariously? Well, part of it is the, the, the difficulty that a union has to represent its members and to not necessarily step outside of representing its members. So if you have a, a, a bargaining unit that is mostly concerned about their own job and their own kind of security, if the union doesn't foster uh, an educational environment where they understand the importance of offering their solidarity outside of their own bargaining unit, then it makes it a lot easier to happen. But also on the legal side, it is quite difficult for a union to not allow management to do what management does, right? And this is, I think, one of the difficulties that we have in mainstream society of understanding what the role of the union is. It isn't all powerful at all. A union cannot stop layoffs. And if management decides to lay people off and contract that out, there's almost no legal recourse that a union can take. Even if you imagine all of the kind of creatical, the creative or radical stuff that a union might be able to do, uh, it is still quite limited. Like, if your union of writers witnesses uh, management contracting out the cleaning services of your office. 
you can't go on strike to protest that unless you go on a legal strike. And a lot of people aren't ready to go on a legal strike uh, or are not able to do that. And the other reality is, is as jobs continue to concentrate, it turns into you're just protecting your own turf because, quite frankly, you you can't be laid off. You can't afford to be laid off. Yeah, I, I wonder if we're sidestepping that aspect of it because and here again is this is like my opinion based on my my personal experience and talking to a bunch of people based on my first day at work at the CBC being coming to work and there being a lockout which had a lot to do with contract positions and my understanding based on no research whatsoever which you can I would be happy to be uh, <laughs> to be educated on if it's accurate or not is that when you've got people who have through years of bitter struggle accrued benefits and security and all sorts of uh, advantages for being a, a fully staffed member of a media union, they don't want to give any of that up no matter what. And when management pushes back in terms of, okay, fine, we'll grandfather that for you for you guys, but we're not going to. We don't want every time we hire somebody to have legacy costs where we're, we're going to be beholden to this employee for the next 30 years. And because those young people aren't involved with union leadership because they're not involved. They don't, I never showed up to a union meeting or voted. It's like any kind of democratic thing where the older people who show up to vote get the consideration. And my feeling was that the way that that CBC conflict and the way that I think there's a larger industry trend is that it's been on the backs of younger people, that they've traded protect the benefits of those who are in the mob at the expense of those who don't have those positions. We'll, we'll let you do whatever you want with these young freelancers and contractors and casuals and temporaries. Yeah. Well, what you're describing is kind of how all of society has reacted to this generational shift where older workers uh, are trying to hang on to what they've always had and what they've been promised and younger workers can't even get in the door. And this is actually what I do most of my work in. And I get to speak to union conventions about this issue. And I speak to young workers about pushing back against some of these forces. Um, But I also do a lot of writing and I wrote a book on um, the, the pressures that are facing the labor movement, if they don't figure out how to bridge the generational gap between older and and younger workers, then the labor movement has no future. And this is not unique to media uh, workers at all. Uh, There's a a very uh, clear sense uh, among older workers that they are under attack, and they are under attack, right? Older workers um, are, are more expensive for the reasons that you outlined. And management does tend to want to get rid of the more expensive workers, right? And so seniority exists to uh, stop management from firing the most expensive workers who also tend to be the oldest. Because if you're 55 years old and you're fired, uh, it's probably harder than if you're 20 years old and fired. Now, I don't think anyone should be fired. <laughs> well, y- y- you know, but um, but but th- that is a reality for older workers. And then, of course, you know, pensions are being cut and and people are being asked to work longer. And, and so there's pressures at the older side of the generations. But for younger workers, things are really, really difficult. The labor movement has let them down on fighting uh, against higher tuition fees and high student debt, which has an enormous impact on what younger workers can even accept for work. Uh, we know that um, the impact of student debt and on, on of credit card debt is is putting in tremendous pressure on a younger class of workers, and they don't have the political capital within unions or even within broader society to push back uh, against the the forces that are continuously taking away even the small level of securities that still exist. And, and the only breakthrough that we've seen really in the last decade of, of a younger generation expressing itself politically, I would say, is with the election of, of Trudeau, which is a symbolic uh, election. 
and I'm not totally sure we're going to see many of the, the this any real results from that. But that is the first real push of a younger generation saying, no, we, we reject kind of the conservative ideology of profits, profits, profits and layoffs, uh, which is permeated throughout industries or whatever. Yeah, I feel I feel like we are talking about so many different industries, and and the feeling amongst you know my peers and colleagues has been not just that they're not represented, but that in certain instances it feels like the union is actually against you. And, and I'll, I'll I'll bring up a few different cases. We just heard uh, the Chronicle Herald right now. I believe is in lockout. Is that right in Halifax? They're in they're in a cooling off period, but they are heading okay. towards lockout. Yeah, we became aware of a report that they be, they're looking for scabs and they're going to J school students and recent graduates and trying to get them to fill in in, in anticipation of this lockout. And we heard that, um, that that was going on and it was sort of uh, – we, we were able to independently confirm it with a couple different people who, who had been offered jobs. And this is something that one of them wrote and they wrote it anonymously. I'm just a kid with a ton of debt. I've been unable to find work since, and then uh, this person mentions a bunch of contracts that they don't want us to repeat because it might give away their identity. Five interviews, countless of applications. What was I supposed to do? I had to take this job. It was my last resort. And then the union threatened to release our names as well as our LinkedIn profiles. Now, that is a hell of an accusation. And we were able to confirm that too. I mean, just out in the open, the Halifax Typographical Union was asked on Twitter uh, make sure to post pics and names of the scabs. And their official Twitter account replied, I'm making a list and checking it twice and will make it public along with how to find them, the scabs, on Reddit, LinkedIn, etc." What the hell is going on there? Well, these are workers who've been there for, for decades and who are facing uh, just losing their entire livelihood. Right. And and we and we just saw that at CHCH in Hamilton, it was pretty much the, the same thing, although they didn't have the same negative history with with management there. But like you can imagine how frustrating it must be if you're fighting for really basic protections, like they're not fighting for anything actually particularly radical. And um, for a young journalism student to say, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go work there. And how dare you announce to the world that I'm going to scab? It's kind of unreasonable because, well, first of all, if their byline is appears in the Chronicle Herald and and the workers have been locked out, like people will remember that. Right. There's a difference between people remembering that and the union saying we are going to ruin you. We are going to tell everybody in the business that you're a scab and try to put you on a blacklist when this is a young person just trying to pay their rent. Yeah, but but they're but they're being played by men. Management. Like, do you think that that once once this blows over, do you think that a young person paying their rent is going to be kept by the Chronicle Herald? <laughs> you know, like so for short term game, you're going to sell out a bunch of workers who are fighting for their livelihoods. And and let's remember, fighting for livelihoods means fighting to put food on the table for your kids, fighting to be able to pay your mortgage, like really basic needs that people have. And then somebody who's like, I got student debt, I need a job, so I'm going to take this temporary position. Well, why would you do that? Like, why don't you wait for the period of the lockout to end and then try to become a proper journalist at the Chronicle Herald later on, you know? I really feel like putting this on this young J school graduate. I mean, like that's the wrong tack to take. You know, the union, I'll give you another anecdote here. Well, I just, uh, I just uh, want to make sure that like, I, I, I don't think retaliation, calling for re- retaliation is fair. And this is obviously a particular instant with the Halifax Typographical Union. But I would hope that that young journalist understands like why that kind of reaction would be elicited, you know? Yeah, I mean, these are kind of grimy tactics that go back a long way and, and, and how replacement workers are, 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 first of all, called scabs to begin with. 
And I, and I think that in, in, a, in a different environment, that's just necessary to have solidarity. But this is a young person who it is, it is unlikely that this person is ever going to gain anything by being a member of that union. I mean, so you're stuck between uh, two different organizations, one of which at least is going to give you a little bit of work and help you uh, burnish your resume, even if it's not going to, even if they're exploiting you as well, at least they got something on the table for you. Of course, I was involved in, in reporting the Gameshi story where my friend of the CBC, Catherine Burrell, went to the union to complain about Gameshi. She was discouraged from launching. Uh, they have a zero tolerance policy. So you make things like, well, we, we, you know, as soon as you pull this lever, it's hugely consequential. So then you're discouraged from, from pulling the lever. And she, and she ultimately was encouraged to kind of go through an informal process. And later they denied the whole thing. They, they went back and they said, well, we have no record of a union employee being made uh, told about this complaint. And that turns out that they were just weaseling out of it because she hadn't brought her case to a union employee. It was an elected like shop steward kind of guy and he didn't take any notes. And only because she had the email exchange, did they ultimately have to, I mean, they basically called her a liar. And then Carmel Smythe at the CMG had to apologize to her. I mean, you've got the union actually actively working against people. We have an employee here I just hired uh, this guy, Kevin Sexton, who was a casual at the CBC, and they basically told him, you know, they're not giving him a full-time living. They're not paying him uh, for a full-time job. So he takes work uh, first part-time with us, and they said, sorry, you're going to have to choose. Canada Land is a rival. This is the CBC saying this, mind you. Canada Land is a rival news organization, and we don't like them anyhow, he was told. But any rival news organization you're not allowed to work for. That's not true. The union, apparently he is protected by the union and has the ability to work for other news organizations. He has to, to make a living. And so he's got a grievance in. And if everything goes right, right, if everything goes his way in this union grievance, then technically the CBC will have to consider him for future jobs. But as if that's going to happen now that it's known that he makes union grievances. So he's full time here now. Right. So there, I, but you've, you've kind of touched on a lot of different issues, right? The tactics when, when fever pitch is high, when you're facing lockout, you're, you're facing losing your job of 30 years. I think that that's one thing that, that we can have a discussion about the tactics and the, and the strategies that unions use in that kind of situation. When you talk about sexual assault, like unions are human organizations and they are imbued with all of the problems that we have in society broadly speaking, right? And so, like, you can't tell me that Gomeshi, uh, uh, that there aren't a, a thousand Gomeshis in management classes across Canada in every single corporation, right? <laughs> like, there are stories about top-level CEOs being ab- abusive towards women, and there is literally no recourse uh, uh, for uh, to them for their actions in, most, in many, many cases. So that's less of a union issue and more of the fact that uh, are there um, men and women, perhaps, in unions who turn away from dealing with assault and abuse allegations? Obviously, because we all live within patriarchy, right? <laughs> um, and so the real question when it comes to sexual harassment or sexual assault is, is the union there doing its job? And in a situation like with Gomeshi, if the union failed and the union president has to apologize, that becomes an internal problem within the union. And there are structures to deal with it to try and make sure that that doesn't happen in the future, which isn't an excuse. It's just a reminder that these organizations are just people and people with have, you know, are, are, are fallible, obviously. Well, look, I don't want to ask you to uh, answer for the sins of all these different unions and all these different cases. I, but, you know, I, I wonder if we can't draw some larger 
you know, kind of conclusion or talk about a larger problem. It's one that you alluded to earlier, which is the challenge of unions to stay relevant. I think it comes down to just resources and money. If that older generation is unwilling to give up anything in an industry that is facing the challenges that the media, I mean, there's only something's got to give, right? So either it's going to come on the backs of young people or those people who have, who expected uh, a career for life kind of no matter what, who expected all sorts of benefits short of getting laid off might have to give up something. And we've seen, I, I, I don't know, again, I don't want to say anything definitively, I don't feel like they're willing to give up anything. I don't feel like they have given up anything or much. And that's those chickens are coming home to roost. Kind of, except that you forget that in a lot of cases, what, what workers are fighting for is not what they've been promised, but what they've already paid for. Right. There are there are workers. And, and, and certainly this is the case in the media industry who have paid their pension dues and are still under threat of losing those. Right. So so we're not talking about uh, workers that have a sweetheart deal over here and then workers who have absolutely nothing over here. Like management knows that these pressures exist and management knows that there's an older generation of workers who grew up where the union was just a way that brought organization in order to a workplace. Right. It's like, what is the most effective way to bargain with employees? It's to have a collective agreement that covers, you know, dozens or hundreds of workers so that you're not trying to deal with people individually. That just makes economic sense. But younger workers are entering uh, a world or have lived in a world for for uh, worked in a world for, for a decade or two decades now that doesn't even believe that there exists society, right? That this goes back to Thatcher and the elimination of collective society in general. And what this has meant is that younger workers feel and are totally isolated, have very few community supports, belong to very few community organizations that they can that they can draw on for support or that they can use to socialize. And uh, and then are also struggling with uh, a household debt that's, you know, 168 percent of household income and student uh, student debt that has reached 19 billion dollars. Right. Like a lot of really important and difficult financial pressures. They uh, by and large, younger workers approach unions with the same skepticism that they approach corporations because it's groups of people working together. And that is weird. And so one of the big challenges that I think the left has in general, and certainly unions are part of this, is to explain that we have been like fundamentally changed by economic, social and political forces that through through government policies that just calls into the very question, the idea of of community at all outside of your own personal family. And, And what that means is that when older workers say something and younger workers say something, they're usually speaking in totally different languages and management exploits the hell out of this. And and this is why we even get into a conversation about how sweet it is for older workers and how shitty it is for younger workers. It's shitty for everybody. <laughs> like this is, I think, the, the most important message is that it is shitty for everybody. And who is to blame? It is not the unions and it is not older workers. And it's not even the younger workers that are willing to scab at the Chronicle Herald. It is the people making these economic decisions to say, good luck, good fucking luck, figuring out the rest of your life on your own. And if you are successful and if you're well connected, you'll be fine. And if you're not Good luck trying to get a living wage job and a, or even enough hours at your job to hobble together a life. That is a very interesting argument. And I know that a lot of your work is about educating people and challenging not just a notion, but maybe a whole psychology of young people for whom groups of people functioning 
in concert with each other have only been working against us. That, that any kind of association at all, any kind of organization, any kind of society, as you suggest, have only been the enemy of the individual, the individual being the young person, and we've never benefited from any kind of collective organization at all. That's super interesting, and that resonates with me. But, you know, and then I can see the, you know, the next step is we've got to re-educate and, and form new organizations and, and affiliations. But that also describes a problem that exists like only in the heads of young people. And I want to circle back to the conversation about uh, harassment and abuse on the job. Okay, yeah, everyone lives under the patriarchy and this stuff happens at all levels. But isn't it a recipe for abuse when you've got workplaces where all these attractive young people are incredibly precarious and can't afford to make one single enemy and then all of the powerful people are unfireable? Isn't that like a systemic problem, not a philosophical one, not a psychological one? That is in the system of having Brahmins and untouchables. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, you know, I went to Ryerson's journalism school, right? Like that stuff is, I, I saw I saw young journalism students do, uh, who were friends with each other, do horrible things to each other to get really insignificant work, like really not prestigious work at all at like small newspapers. It, it's, it, it, the media has a huge, huge problem in general with this. But of course, the power dynamics, a lot of the times it isn't necessarily the people within the same union, or if it is the people within the same union, then the union needs to identify this as a problem and it needs to act. But when you don't have those young, precarious uh, workers in the union saying, hey, we need to take this seriously, then that's where you start to get the problems getting ignored, right? Like an example that I have that has nothing to do with media, but that I thought was quite interesting was uh, a young worker came to me. Uh, he works for a municipality. In the municipality, 60% of the members of the union were young, temporary and precarious workers who mostly worked in the summer and 40% were full-time uh, municipal workers. But of course, the 40% full-time municipal workers controlled the union because they were full-time. When bargaining came up, the 60% said, look, legislative changes at the provincial level got rid of our breaks. So we'd like to bargain in a break because otherwise we're working for five hours without a break. And the 40% full-timer said, not our issue, because if we go for that, we're going to lose X. I don't remember what they were fighting for. And so the young worker says to me, how am I supposed to convince people of the importance of the union if this is how they're treated? And there's no answer to that that's like, well, they should suck it up and just, you know, their time will come. It's like, no, 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 no. Young people need to challenge authority and find the pressure points to start making their union work for them. And I think in the media, that's a huge issue. People are so afraid of getting blacklisted, especially young women. Um, they're so afraid of never realizing their dream of being, you know, I don't know, the host of the national or whatever. And so that allows them to take on and to accept and absorb a lot of abuse and harassment that's totally unacceptable, unacceptable. But if if they're at least engaged in the work of the union and saying this is a priority, we need to start tackling this, then that provides a counterweight to the, to the structures that do oppress them. Because otherwise, who's going to save them? Well, first of all, I, I hope that young women entering this field are dreaming a better dream than hosting the national, which who knows if it'll even be around. But, but okay, that sounds great. I don't think it's possible. I, I, I just wonder if young people shouldn't be trying to figure out their own ways of organizing outside of, I mean, I have heard of things such as union corruption. I am aware of where the balance of power lies in these unions. To reform the union in order to reform the workplace, is that ever going to happen? And isn't the future of organized labor, if there is one, building something new from the ground up. But the problem is, is that like, yeah, you can say that. But first of all, not all unions are the same, right? Not every union is a Canadian media guild, right? 
And there are new experiments happening. I'm, a, I'm an executive member of the Canadian Freelance Union, and we're not a traditional union. All of your staff could become a member of the Canadian Freelance Union. And if you fired them all, like we would have no legal recourse to sue you. <laughs> right. So there are interesting things. And the only reason why we exist is to give people benefits. Right. Because you, you need your health benefits and you need your home, your home insurance. And you might need a Canadian press card if you're a freelancer and you don't have a, an agency that you're working for. So there are new things emerging. And that's a whole other topic. Topic. But the reality is, is that unions still have the legal ability to challenge this stuff. And if you are a young worker who is facing harassment in your workplace, if it's not the union, who who's going to protect you? Because harassment is yeah. illegal, right? Like you need a legal structure to deal with it. It's not going to be the cops, right? Like right now, what has emerged in the vacuum is the court of popular opinion. And, and that this stuff is just getting uh, worked out on social media because there, there are no mechanisms in place. Oh, I think the court of public opinion is uh, something that goes back to biblical times. Like it, it, that's always going to exist. But if you're trying to deal with something properly, you need you need structures to exist. Right. And so from my perspective, it's like, OK, do you have structures that the workers at least have a say on or do you hand all that power over to management? Because in, in an employee employer relationship, there's no other option other than government. So let's talk about some of these new companies that are not burdened by already existing within a, a unionized uh, shop. And we're seeing in the States Gawker unionized, Vice unionized. How is that playing out? Is it anything different than what's happened in the past when you can sort of, uh, I don't know anything about what, what, what uh, if they form new unions or joined existing ones. I do know that Tanara Yelland, who full disclosure used to uh, work on Canada Land a bit, uh, recently a vice employee, and I, uh, she won't speak with the press right now, but this is just sort of a what is publicly known. It's publicly known that she was involved, that she is involved in a unionization drive at Vice Canada. It's publicly known that shortly after that was announced, she no longer worked at Vice Canada. And uh, I guess it's publicly known that uh, we're going to find out if, if, if Vice Canada goes ahead with that, if, if those employees uh, do form a union or not. In the context of what of that attempt, in the context of what has been successful with online media companies in the States, is there anything new about the way young people are organizing as opposed to the way it's been done before in the media? Well, like unions evolved out of uh, over over decades to try and meet the needs of whatever the, the workers at the time wanted. Right. And so one of the things that I think is quite interesting uh, in the United States um, now, it's not in media, but it is a broad, uh, many multi-sector fight is the fight to increase the minimum wage where a union is kind of driving some of that campaign. But organizations are forming of workers who have no no workplace protections, who are just simply fighting for enough money to be able to live. And, you know, the fight for 15. In Canada, the, the Canadian Freelance Union, we're an organization under the umbrella of Unifor. Now, we have our own decision-making structure, so Unifor doesn't get involved in our business. We have our own executive. But we need Unifor because the dues are so low that we can't cover the costs to do almost like to do any almost any of the work that we need to do. Um, but what we try to do uh, and what some of the ideas is, is moving out of uh, the requirement of having a bargaining unit of people um, under the same management structure. Because if, if you're always contracting out your work, then often your employees fall outside of labor code uh, rules that allow them to even form a bargaining unit. Right. And so 
finding new ways of, of organizing workers who, who have no common management structure is really important. And it just brings a little bit of uh, clarity, I guess, to to workers who have no idea where to even go if they were to have a problem and to just give them people to talk problems out with. Like, even though those people don't necessarily have a, a legal authority to intervene if there was an issue. So it's not ideal, but it is a step. Um, now, I'm not familiar of any organizations that are forming like this outside of unions. Um, Unite Here is doing something very similar to this in, in England. Who are they? Unite Here is uh, is one of the big uh, unions that uh, ha- in Canada has a lot of members in uh, hotel, in the hotel industry. Um, uh, UFCW, the United Food and Commercial Workers uh, in British Columbia, they've done a lot of work to organize freelancers as well. And it's not just freelance communications workers, though there are some of them involved. And the, and the Media Guild has also uh, been organizing freelancers as well. And I'm not I'm not as familiar with their structure, um, uh, mostly because I'm not a member of them. I'm a member of the other freelancing union. So there are emerging attempts to try and bring people together. But again, it's, it's a bit limited when you don't have that legal framework to be able to compel uh, uh, um, someone to you know, pay their contract through if that becomes a, a dispute that the worker faces. Like the power of an online discussion, the immediate thing, yeah, is like you're going to expose someone, you're going to name and shame them. But at the heart of why collective bargaining works at all, before you even get into whether or not it has legal protection, is, uh, you know, it's easier to conquer people when they're divided. So rather than negotiating with employees one at a time, if I knew that my four full-time employees had a forum online where they got together, disclosed their salaries to each other and said, you know, uh, we're aware that this company's doing better and we're going to, you know, we are going to right here put together a proposal for what our raise is going to be next year or what the protocol is for getting rid of somebody or what the protocol is for hiring, I would just have to, as management, I would have to take that seriously because they're speaking with one voice. If they could get together and figure out a policy, whether or not I'm privy to that conversation or if it's private and they they present me with a proposal, just the fact that they're speaking together gives them more power than they would have independently. That seems like a job that's just made for the internet. Yeah, the, the issue is that if you were to tell them to fuck off, there's still like this endless supply of of, of young journalists that you could hire and replace them with, right? Yeah, that's right. I, I, and then, it, you know, I, it would be, they could basically compound the hassle for me. They could say, well, you're not going to have to rehire one of us. You're going to have to rehire four of us. And then one disincentive to that would be that that's a huge disruptive thing to my business. And the next disruptive thing would be back to the name and shame, that that would be really bad optics. But that is definitely a stronger position than one of them saying, give me this raise or I quit. Oh, there's no question. You know, I, I've, I've traveled a lot in, in, in Canada. And um, and because I travel a lot, I'm, I'm often sitting with businessmen. And it's really fascinating because they always ask what I do. And I'm never really that interested in talking about what I do because they're always management types. But like it doesn't it never takes longer than 10 minutes to get them to concede that the union just does make more sense, but that you have less power as management. And that's what it comes down to is you do have less power. And some managers don't mind that because they understand that there's a balance that you have to be fair and, and fuck like. I, I've been management more than I've been a unionized worker. <laughs> so, like, I know how to fire people and I know uh, what it looks like when 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 management is, is oppressing and harassing workers intentionally because they're rabble rousers. So, but the, the key is, is getting rid of the personal stuff. Like, you don't want to have a, a legal system premised on good faith with management. <laughs> no, but it's just bargaining power. I mean, like, it, it's funny because it's almost like I'm suggesting 
without even having a top-down organizational structure, you could almost like have an Uber for unions, which is funny because, of course, Uber is a union-busting tool. But but you could have – like people could just get together when it's time to negotiate a bonus or, or any kind of policy and and quickly figure something out and say, we're speaking with one voice. Deal with it. And here's what we're going to do if you don't. And, and it would, it, that would just have more power than if one of them came to me independently. Totally. And that's that's actually what we do at the Canadian Freelance Union. We've had a couple of small media organizations say, look, we, we haven't had a contract – discussion, collective contract discussion ever. And we disagree with, and it's never salary, right? Like most people are willing to just put up with whatever salary they have, but we've got some real concerns about the publisher um, getting too involved. Can you help us? Can you give us best practices? Uh, What's the average rate we should be asking for? Like really, really basic stuff. I'm, I'm doing a lot of thinking about like the generational differences between challenging authority. And I think that that actually has a really major thing to do with this, too, is that young young people don't know how to challenge authority or or are too afraid because they think that there will always be retaliation. You know, we, we t- touched briefly on social media as just like a place to kind of name and shame companies who are treating employees uh, abusively or, or poorly. But really, like at the heart of a lot of these new applications online is just um, making it cheaper for people to get together and form ad hoc organizations and communicate with each other. A lot of what has gone rotten in unions comes from the necessity of building bureaucracies and structures and the you know, organizations that need their own staffs. I, I can't help but wonder how much of this couldn't be automated. Uh, is there an app for that? Is there is there technology fueling any kind of new model for people getting together and speaking with one voice. Well, I, I'm I'm really excited by Slack, which is kind of a boring thing to say. Um, but I think that that's it's kind of a back to the future chat board where people can just come together and share ideas and issues. Right. And and Slack is is mostly something to bring cohesion to a workplace. But you can imagine having a, a, a Slack channel where people can come together and discuss issues that are facing them as employees, you know, in whatever sector. And, and we've, we're, we're talking about doing something like that with the Canadian Freelance Union just to bring people together uh, so that it's less about Twitter where you're kind of grandstanding or saying something and not necessarily expecting a response, but actually coming together and, and, and having a conversation about solving each other's problems. The danger, again, is that there's a limitation to all of this. And so can you name and shame a corporation enough to get them to pay up, to come through with paying up a, a contract? Uh, in some cases, you, you for sure can, um, but by and large, you, you can't. Um, and so then the question becomes, are these organizations really replacing the work of unions or is it maybe a complementary uh, way for, for, for young people or for workers or young workers or workers within a p- specific sector to at least come together and, and talk? Because at the end of the day, that is the real problem is, is this social isolation in th- that exists within broader society. It exists in the workplace as well. And any time that we can build community within workplaces, even if it's just around a a, a social uh, gathering, um, I think is really, really important because that's how you build worker power. That's how you identify problems. That's how you effectively uh, create the clout necessary to challenge union leadership to take the issues that uh, people are experiencing in the workplace seriously. Nora, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Yeah, thank you very much. That is your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me always at jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is at canadalandshow.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter, Not Sorry, right there. 
The crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Quick reminder that we're launching this new series uh, here in Toronto later this month, Canada Land at the Movies. The first screening will be Deadline USA, a movie about the news business, old bogey movie. And before the movie, I'm going to be talking with Michael Enright, who says that this is one of the movies that made him decide to get into journalism. You can hang out and chat with Michael and I afterwards. You can have a drink with us. You can buy tickets to the event by following the link on our Facebook page to Canada Land at the Movies. I'll see you all there. Next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday. Next episode of Canada Land Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. I make this show with Katie Jensen. If you like Canada Land, please support us. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.